this is our weekly program during the regular church year uh, where we have an invited speaker who comes and talks to us on some issue of interest to the church or to the community in general. Um, if you're interested in joining the forum committee, we always have space for you. Um, we meet irregularly, but we do communicate through email and um, find speakers. Uh, next week, our forum will be um, Tina DeYo and Dale Arnink uh, speaking at the Guest at Your Table program, which is a, a UUSC program. Um, so I hope you can make it for that. Um, but uh, this week, we have Andrea Detterman, who's a member of our church here, also an important member of our community, uh, very active as a teacher. She's been a teacher for 33 years. She's been active in the union, um, looks out for, oh, the teachers and the students. Um, I've heard several stories where people have been desperate to get their students into her class. Uh, she's an exceptional teacher. But she's going to talk today on um, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, um, basically Barack Obama's books. Uh, this was inspired by the recent election and some of Andrea's thoughts about uh, the world. And so um, Andrea will speak to us this morning. It's funny that teachers can speak to kids in front of their class, but we have a hard time with adults. So, but I've been doing this for a long time. So, um, in honor of Black History Month and President Obama, I have hope. Um, after the election and so many different things that changed my world as an educator, changed my world as a democratic leader and supporter and helper, changed my world a little bit in doing union work that I've done in New York, Idaho, and here. Um, I sat down and I was watching television and it was New Year's Eve and I felt like I needed some hope. I felt like I needed this hope for myself, um, for my husband so that he didn't go crazy, and for my kids and my students and my colleagues, because I'm always smiling and I try to be happy, even when I'm not. Um, today I'm going to share a little bit. Here's my best buddy, Becky Sterrett. I was waiting for her. She said she would come. This is one of my BFFs from school, and she's helped me so much. So I waited. Here we go. I have hope. Emily Dickinson wrote, Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. And sweetest, sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land, and on the strangest sea, and never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. <clears throat> As I sat in my living room with John on New Year's Day, having visited, having returned from visiting my 90-year-old mother, very staunch, very strong, very independent, a pain in a petunia, awaiting the, in, the inauguration of our new president and watching the Obamas say goodbye, I felt like I needed some hope. 
I began to search the internet to read some poems about hope, and I found several notes, some summaries, and references to the audacity of hope written by Barack Obama. I knew I had this book somewhere. I knew I read it many years ago. I felt the need to review it again. And after listening to my family, my other BFF just came in. Thank you. Okay. As I reviewed his book again, listened to my family and friends, their concerns, their issues, their debates, their discussions, and pondered notes from many folks, I decided to share Obama's thought for my UU community um, from the book from Barack Obama, The Audacity of Hope. While looking through this humongous large book, I felt like I needed to summarize, as I tell my kids, the most important things. So here's what I found. Here's what's been inspiring me since January 1st. In chapter one, he talks about Republicans and Democrats. And Barack Obama contends that in the past, lawmakers were able to overlook their differences in the service of compromise and the public good and the public good and the intra-party working, working relationships were more apt to be characterized by decorum, collegiality, and genuine fellow feeling. We must have real compromise and cooperation between both parties in order for our country to live up to its potential. Let's work it out. In chapter two, he talks about values. He states that the political system itself makes it very difficult for politicians to remain true to their values. He says that in this age of 24-hour news cycles, Facebook, tweeting, chats, messaging, small and minute and trivial actions by politicians on both sides and in the middle can be posted to the internet. Just like that. Just like that. Uh, and, and can be held up for criticism. He suggests, he urges us, he begs us to return to a political sphere in which ideas, values, and action plans matter much more than social media. We should remember that also before we post information on social media. In chapter three, he talks about his constitution. He talks about our constitution. He loves law, he loves being a lawyer, and it has helped him in his grassroots background in Chicago and all the other places he's been. However, in his, in his state or mood of evolving and growing, he sees himself as a lawmaker who recognizes the historical significance of our Constitution, but feels that it is a living document and it must be applied flexibly in order to remain relevant in an ever-changing world. When our Constitution was created, we didn't have to deal with bathroom issues and different people of different cultures and different sexual orientations. We didn't have all of that. And if we did, they kept it hidden. So he feels like we need to make sure we are current for all of our, all of our society. In chapter four, he talks about politics. And he recalls, he remembers as he grew up and he recalls as he served in the Senate um, with, he recalls his encounters as he began to run, as he began to talk to his colleagues 
with potential donors and special interest groups. And this gave me some issues because while I knew where his position was, as he served as our president for two successful terms, many people on both sides had problems with some of his decisions. And after rereading this book, I now understand why. He recalls his encounters with potential donors and special interest groups whom regarded their support as a genuine endorsement of their pet issues. And he felt that politicians, and he feels that politicians must, must pledge to consider each issue and propose bill as they arise, as it arise, on an individual case-by-case -case basis. He exhorts his colleagues on both sides of the aisle and in the middle to loosen their grip on the trappings of power in order to best serve the needs of their constituency and the country. We should consider that too. In chapter five, he talks about opportunity. He feels and he, he felt and he still feels, and you can tell by the way he governed, that the economic and educational systems are failing the poor and oppressed of all cultures, of all colors. He pushed, he, when he was in office, and he will continue to do this, he feels he needs to, he pushed for practical solutions for, report, for reforming public schools, including merit pay for teachers in alternate schooling formats. This was a contention for me, because many of my colleagues on both sides was upset and very critical of Arnie Duncan, of Arnie Duncan's, Duncan's and Barack Obama's position on education. I had to go back and read these long papers of their positions to understand exactly what he meant. And so here's the piece that people forget. However, he insisted that these reforms that states decide to take be based on ideas proven either through prior implementation or thorough um, empirical research. And that was the catch. As a teacher, I struggled, I struggled with Arnie, educational policies in Barack's, but then I later realized that many states, including our own, did not heed that last part of his position, selecting research-based programs that have been successful, successfully implemented in other school districts. We haven't done that. And therefore, that's only half of the plan. In chapter six, <clears throat> he talks about faith. His journey from atheism, he was an atheist, did you know that? To faith allows him to believe in the separation of church and state. He talks and he concludes that faith could serve as a common ground for future collaboration and cooperation between the two parties and all those in between. However, uh, for him, tolerance and respect for religious diversity is of paramount importance to him, and it is for me. Because I too believe, because I also believe this too, and I've had my own religious journey. Today I'm gonna to share with you things that I never share, but with people who I care about. After the death of my brother in Vietnam in 1967, my, my oldest sister was murdered by her husband, domestic violence in 1961. And when my, my fiance before I met my husband was killed driving a cab, he also was a vet, 
trying to make the world a better place. He was waiting for a job to work in the prison system so he can help people. I've lost three important people in my life. Um, one, I thought I was going to give up. And when I thought I didn't want to be here anymore, I remembered my mom and dad telling me that you have to have hope, you have to have faith. So I too went on a religious journey. And in the beginning, after all of these tragedies, I was an atheist. I did not believe in anything. I believed in myself. I believed in people. I believed in circumstances. And I believed that I shouldn't even be here anymore because I've lost some people and maybe I did something to deserve this. And then, because of my mom and dad, because of my wonderful family, I became agnostic because I couldn't take my mom's preaching anymore. To satisfy my mom, I became a Baptist, and I was baptized in New York City, the church that she was buried in about three weeks ago. And then that wasn't quite right for me, and I became a Baha'i. And now I'm a member of the UU Church. So personally, I want to believe that Obama is really a, a UU. <laughs> Chapter 7 talks about race. <clears throat> Barack Obama's mother was white American, while his father was Kenyan, and he experienced growing up in the American West. He grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia, which he feels affords him a unique vantage point in the continued discussion about race in the United States. He says, he believes, he acts, and feels that there has been great progress that has been made, but on a daily, but daily experiences of people of color are still highly influenced by more subtle forms of prejudice. He challenges Americans, he challenges us to respond to racism with clear disapproval, and he calls on people of color to give up the mantle of victimhood and persecution, which he believes limits their ability to reach their potential. I can attest that my, my parents taught me the same thing, and it allowed me much success as a teacher in my hometown of Harlem, New York City, the Bronx, and in Idaho, and now New Mexico. I have friends from all walks of life with various cultural backgrounds and religious beliefs. I admire, respect, and love them all, just the way they are. When I lived in Idaho, I worked on a rural um, LDS community. I don't think they ever saw a black person before. And I knew they were afraid and they were prejudiced. Well, I would say ignorant and some prejudice, but before they left, they loved me and so did their kids. I worked with migrant students in Idaho. They never saw a, um, a black female, I'm sure, before. My husband could tell you different. Um, and I won their hearts over, as well as the LDS community. And for that, I'll be ever grateful for my husband giving me that opportunity. And then I came to New Mexico. We'll talk about that later. In chapter eight, Barack talks about the world beyond our borders. And he believes, and I believe he still believes this now, couldn't find a research, but this is what he wrote in his book. Barack believed that the US defense budget and military strategy has not fully adapted to the emerging state of world affairs. 
He proposes affording more responsibility in international policing to our allies and asserts the need for a multilateralism and cooperation in future military affair efforts. So he feels like we all should be helping in policing our international world. It should never be just on us. We have to have the support of others. Otherwise, we won't be successful. And that's how he led, too. His final chapter talks about family. And I think the most important thing as a UU I can share with you today is that he stated in this chapter that the American families today face unique challenges and obstacles since many are forced to have both parents working full time outside of the home. Many families struggle, struggle to maintain balance and assign responsibilities fairly as spouses, partners, significant others, as they juggle their personal and professional commitments. He argues that Republicans who seek to, impo to impose a more traditional family structure are advancing, a, a, advancing an unrealistic solution. He, abhor he abhors any attempt to legislate personal morality and intimate life choices, while at the same time, recognizing that both supportive social policies and personal responsibilities are needed to allow children the unshakable foundation of stability and structure that they need to strive. There is so much more he speaks about in his book that gave me hope, as well as his other book entitled Dreams of My Father. So I invite you to read it on your own. So now I come to you today for some other personal notes about me and my life and hope for you. My mom died on January 24th at the grand old age of 98. She said she was tired. And my dad died in 98. But they left me two things, faith and hope. So on a personal note, let me give you where I come from, from my hope, where I get my hope from. I was born in Manhattan. I was born in Harlem. Manhattan, New York City. And I was very poor, but I didn't know it. But my mom and dad never gave up hope. My mom was from North Carolina, my dad was from Georgia. My dad only finished sixth grade, but he always wanted his daughters, three of us, and two daughters to get an education. He said that's the way. Out of poverty, out of hopelessness, out of change. We did that. I'm a teacher, my sister is a nurse, my other sister worked with doctors and she's retired. My two brothers were Vietnam Marine vets. One is alive and one passed on, one got killed. Uh, when I grew up, I always wanted to be a teacher, but my family was too poor to afford it. While attending high school in the 70s in Manhattan, Central Commercial, which is no longer there, a miracle happened, open enrollment in the 70s, and I got admitted to Baruch College in Manhattan and I earned a BA degree in special education and psychology. I stayed with my parents and commuted for five years. I was the first in my family to get a degree. They were so proud of me. Um, I fulfilled my dream and I became a teacher. I later got married to a Vietnam vet. Don't ask me how I got caught up with the vets, but still vets. I got married to a Vietnam vet who was 10 years older than me. I was blessed with a wonderful daughter, Ladisha. I have two grandkids, Quentin and Talia. But later on, I felt a need that I was supposed to be someplace else, so we got divorced. Many years later, I met another vet 
who is my soulmate, I thought. But two years later, his life was taken for a few dollars while he drove a cab, waiting for a better job to help other veterans in prison. I had given up hope. Then a friend got me involved in the Baha'i faith. And she begged me to take a trip to Maine. And it was all of these black females. It was mothers and daughters trip. It was about five of us. We got a van and we were driving to Maine. And um, I didn't want to go. My mom thought, because she was Baptist, you're going to some heathen group. Please don't do this. My father said, go ahead. He was really easy. I think my dad was a UU2 in heart, but he didn't know about it. So but then my friend begged me to take this trip, trip to Maine to attend a Baha'i conference in July of 91. By the way, uh, I will say that my fiance that I met, I met him in 1988. Um, two years to his birthday, he got killed in 1990. A year later, my friend who was a Baha'i begged me to take this trip to attend a Baha'i conference in July of 91. It was there that I met John Dederman, and within a month, we were married. Everyone thought we were crazy, stupid, and my mom was worried about the Aryan nation at that time, saying, oh, I'm going to get killed. And my dad was worried about the strange white man who um, was very quiet and very shy. <laughs> Everyone thought we were crazy, and of course, it did not help that we were an interracial couple from different walks of life. And 1990s weren't much better than the 60s and 70s in certain parts of, of the states. He was from Denver, and I was from Harlem, but I had hope. We have been married for 25 years. Besides my daughter, he has been the best man that I've ever met. He doesn't know this part was coming. He is loving, and he's supportive, and he's fun, and he's intelligent, and he's caring. He's a good husband. He's been a good father, father to my daughter, and I think he's cute too. Because of his drive to help the world be a better place, and not focus on money or, material thing, or materialistic things, I have been fortunate to live in Idaho where no one looks like me. But he had hoped, he had hoped that I could fit in and I could do it and I could make a difference for kids. And he was right, I did. I have wonderful friends and wonderful students that to this day, it's been about 25, 14, 15 years, they still email me, they still text me, and they know who I am. But when I moved to Idaho, <clears throat> I had to leave all of my family from New York City, and it was a rough. I even left my daughter for one year to make sure that he was who I thought he was. And he was. But my dad and my mom said, have hope. I had a good life in, in Idaho, a nice house, great teaching career, met some great people, and I still love Idaho. Um, the next event was once we had secured the job I wanted after teaching so many years in another community and um, being nominated as Delta Kappa, Gamma, Delta Kappa Gamma, which was a really vibrant teaching community that I've been trying to get in for 14 years. He came home and said, we're moving. We're going to New Mexico. And I said, hell no. <laughs> However, he allowed me to stay for a month by myself to see if we could make this work. And after a month, I realized that I needed my significant, special soulmate. So I came to New Mexico in 
November of uh, 19, what year was it? 2003. We relocated here uh, 14 whatever years, and once again, I had to start all over again and hope that I could fit in again because not many folks looked like me. But I had hope. So while teaching at the middle school, I had Jordy Herbick in my class. And one day he asked me to attend a workshop at his church. But if you know Jordy, he's very particular. So he made me come outside during recess time because he didn't want to mix church and state. <laughs> so I met Jordy outside and he asked me to attend a workshop. I think Coke Young and her husband and some of the people who have passed, and I can't remember names, were in this workshop. Some of them are not here. Uh, my husband and I, um, after leaving Idaho, uh, and after re-examining the Baha'i faith, there were some things in the faith that did not match our beliefs and our concerns and our lives. So we, um, we, we dropped the faith of the Baha'i and said, no more church. No more religion. We'll just do as we do and meet as we meet and go as we go. So my husband and I was not planning on attending or going to any more churches, but Jordy insisted that his church would appreciate my input, would appreciate me, and that I needed to be there. So if you know Jordy, he's very um, insistent, and he um, begged and hounded me for a week, and I attended the church here how many years ago? About? 13 years. So here I am. I have, I have wonderful, amazing friends here. I have wonderful, amazing friends I've, I've met in school. I have a great teaching career here. When I walk into this place, I feel welcomed, I feel loved, I feel respected here. I was able to convince my husband even to attend and now we're members. The first adult who befriended me and taught me more about the UU Church was Felicia Orth, who I consider my BFF. Evan and her have been great friends to my husband and I, but there are so many more folks here that I love. Um, um, but there are so many folks, there, but there are many more folks we have enjoyed and included in our life from the UU Church. Thank you, Herbick, for Georgie, for, for George, Georgie, for Gordy. Jordy, right. Okay, he will always hold a special place in my heart because he brought me here and he had hoped that I would find a home and I did. Another incident that I might like to share was when I returned from visiting my mom, she had fell in December, I wanna say, or January. She fell because she was so stubborn, because she refused to use a walker, because she said a walker was for old people, and she didn't want to be dependent on it, even though she was 98. When I returned from visiting my mom and caring for her with my sisters, I have two sisters, during that plight, there was lots of tragic things that I was bearing on my own, my own shoulders, with so many black people being shot in, my, in New York City and other places that I lived and loved. And I had decided, my husband was sick one day, and I had decided that I wanted to go to church to see you and feel better. As I walked up to this church, lo and behold, there was this big, big sign that said, Black Lives Matter, and I began to cry because I felt 
that while I felt alone, I wasn't. And while there was only one or two of me in this church, you cared enough to show me. And you have no idea what that poster did to me. That sign made me feel strong. It made me feel loved. It made me feel special. It made me feel not alone. And forever this would be my church and my family. Um, when I got home, I called my mom. I called my sisters and I said, guess what? The UU Church in Los Alamos had a big old sign saying Black Lives Matter. This is where I belong. I'm so thankful for Jordy. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for my husband. I have hope for the future. So, I did it. I'm almost finished. (laughs) Many times, because I'm sensitive and I like not my kids to know, you will see me in church singing, laughing, and there will be tears. These are tears of joy. These are tears of of acceptance, these are tears of belonging. I don't feel alone in Los Alamos. So, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. There is still a whole slew of hope. There is still a whole slew of scope in hope. I know how you feel. Your predicament is, unple- your predicament is unpleasant and real. Before you crumble and stumble, like a lone wolf in your solitary struggles, I hear the sadness in your tongue. Realize that your suffering will pass. Its duration may be long. Hang in there, be strong. I know the words to your plightful song. You are not where you wish to belong. But giving up hope is forever wrong. A flower never fumbles and gives up hope. While waiting for its daily water, hope is all to hope is all to it that matters. Herbix, you missed a part. We'll tell you about it later. <laughs> Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Clutch on tight to all ropes. There is still a whole slew of scope and hope. I've set some goals for myself for hope. In order for goals to uplift and enlighten us, we need goals that are challenging and motivating and yet realistic. I went to a workshop and there was this acronym um, to follow in order, in order for goals to be effective and it's called SMART. My husband will give out something in a minute so you'll have it. S is for be specific for your goals for this year. M, measurable. Make sure you can measure them. A, action oriented. Don't sit down, do something. Aura, be realistic, because you know you can't do everything. T, time bound. Make sure they don't last forever. So here is something simple and easy you can do for you to help you on this road to hope. My husband will be handing out some copies of the poems I read from Emily Dickinson and another author, as well as the steps for setting smart goals. I'm so glad and proud to be a UU and be here among you. You all give me hope. And now, one more piece I want to share with you. As I, as I, as Evan said, I've been working in the union, working with the Democrats, working for teachers, working for parents, legislation, and now you, you. I was fighting for education, fighting for democracy, fighting for students of all, of all sexual preferences. I was 
giving up hope a couple of years ago. And then Stephanie Garcia Richards stepped up and she gave me some more hope. And finally, I wanted to say to Becky Sterrett, my other BFF, thank you for taking me into your life. Thank you for being a good friend to me. Thank you for teaching, about this, teaching me about this community. She's been here forever. Thank you for your unconditional love. And thank you for making me be a better teacher. I love you all. So, in closing, I'm going to say this. So my question to you is, what gives you hope? We have about, oh, seven, eight minutes for questions. writing about it, one phrase stu stood out today and during Thucydides' writing. He said, hope is for the helpless. And he was speaking for the Greeks. There was a <coughs> Athens side and a Spartan side. And he was talking to the Spartans not to give up hope because hope was for the helpless. And it turned out that he was prescient because the Spartans won the 29-year war and the Athens didn't. So that, pace, that passage reminded me very, very much of what Thucydides said, and I think it applies to all of us. Hope is for the helpless, and we don't ever want to be there. Thank you. So what gives me hope? I think recently, you know, whenever I talk to my friends, you know, after the election, they would talk to me about how they try to talk to the uh, conservative relatives. And most of the time, these relatives, relatives are older people. So what I'm thinking is that conservative parents grow um, progressive children, but not the other way around. I haven't heard anybody who said, I am a progressive, but my children are so conservative. So to me, it seems like a trend. I mean, my young friends would, you know, doesn't care so much, you know, they, they just take it for granted that LGBT right is there. You know, they have international friends. They say, you know, I, I remember one time um, somebody mentioned to the children in our church about Ka Hyung being Chinese, and they said, she is? I mean, they just don't notice. They just take it for granted. We are all, you know, accepted, accepted here. That gives me real hope, the younger people. So we've been doing a support circle program 
and we had, had our second one yesterday, and basically we get about half dozen people there, and um, and it's it's done on a covenant circle kind of model, but um, what was nice about it is that we sit there and we spend an hour together, and um, the people listen to each other and they speak a little bit from their their own hearts and um, and come away I think feeling better and feeling more connected and um, and that I I find is a is a hopeful thing. Anyone else have a comment? Okay. All right then. Um, why don't we go and have coffee and um, take a look at the information that John handed out? Thank you very much, Andrea. <laughs>